The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mysteries of life. This episode is a compliment to Ritual and Practice for the Urban Homestead, the retreat that I'm co-leading with my husband, Ruben Anderson, this fall, September uh, 28th to October 3rd, at Hollyhock Lifelong Learning Center on Cortez Island. Find out more at hollyhock.ca. My guest today is the lovable, charming Solara Goldwyn of Hatchet and Seed, a landscape design firm that turns underutilized landscapes into lush, abundant, edible ecosystems. She and her partner work with uh, homeowners, municipalities, farmers, and developers to connect food, place, and people. They also teach at a number of schools and offer workshops. And on top of that, they're raising a young daughter and keeping their own home garden productive. I love seeing all that Solara is up to on Instagram. Her handle is Solara Gold, but I just don't know how she does it. And I know that like me, she thinks a lot about climate change preparedness and adaptation. So I invited Solara to share her thoughts and coping strategies. We connected over lunch at my office on the traditional territories of the Lekwungen people, commonly known as Victoria, BC. So Solara, what identities do you lead with? I was trying to think of this on my way over here. I think that um, it can kind of like change for me daily, but mm-hmm. I would say that I'm a mom and a wife and a business owner and concerned um, citizen mm. of the earth. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tell me about your business, Hatchet and Seed. Okay, so we do edible landscaping and some permaculture design, regenerative design, kind of varies. We don't say permaculture a lot, we say edible landscaping. It just resonates with more people. (laughs) I was going to ask you, what is Mm -hmm. the difference between the two? So it's basically the same thing? Um, Well, we use permaculture um, principles and ethics to guide our work, but mainly we're a landscaping business where we install fruit trees, berry bushes, arbors, and food gardens, basically. Okay. Mm-hmm. For people who don't know, what are permaculture principles? Like, what are some examples? How would you describe that ethos? It's, it's uh, evolving, <laughs> for me at least. But um, basically, it's based on three ethics, which I think I always try to come down to. Care of the earth, care of the people, and sharing of surplus. Hmm. Um, So it has to do with designing human systems more in harmony with nature. Hmm. So when I think of permaculture, I think of the zones around your house, and I think of uh, tree guilds. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Can you paint a picture for people of what those kinds of things are so they get a sense of how permaculture is different from conventional agriculture? Yeah. Um... Well, in terms of agriculture, permaculture would be more um, focused on perennial systems. So fruit trees and nut trees, um, agroforestry, um, and then layering um, gardens so that you don't just have uh, vegetable crops, but you have perennial berries and shrubs 
canopy of different layering of uh, trees as well. So that um, it mimics a, a forest in some ways so that uh, the trees are feeding and shading the lower growing species. And um, there's like a flush of perennial vegetables in the spring when the leaves aren't on the trees and you just, you design that way. So it's very seasonally oriented to have kind of waves of things coming on yes. as other things are leaving. Yes. Um, can you tell me about this interesting little thing that you brought for us to share <laughs> over our lunch here? It's like a teeny tiny watermelon the size of my thumb. I know. Not even yeah. Tell, like my thumbnail. Uh, this is like this. the new trend in food growing up. Um, <laughs> it's called a cucamelon. It's also called a mouse melon. Um, a Mexican sour gherkin, it's also known as. So it's a cucumber type plant, very viney, a really showy, small, delicate vine. It's lovely. Um, and they actually have a tuber underground, which um, a lot of people don't know, but you can lift the tuber similar to a dahlia and, and keep it over winter and then replant it in the spring. Uh, am I supposed to pop this teeny tiny <clears throat> cucumber watermelon in my mouth just like this, or do yes. I peel it? No. Nope. Oh, okay. It's like a grape. Oh, and it's super crunchy. It's very crunchy and very much like a cucumber, mm -hmm. and they make excellent pickles. Hmm. So we've been fermenting them um, the past couple of years, and yeah, they we grew them from seed. I grew them from seed, and wow. um, yeah. So. Okay, this teeny <laughs> tiny little watermelon, when you ferment it, I keep calling it a watermelon, because that is what it looks like. It's got those, like, variations, you know, striations on the You have to include a photo. Yeah, this is, I'll put a photo in the show notes. Um, <clears throat> but when you ferment this yes. uh, and make it into a pickle, does it still have the green um, variation of color? Yes. Oh my gosh, that yeah. sounds like the cutest thing on a cheese board. It's amazing. Oh my god. Yeah. And it's just like, it's a lemony cucumber. Yes. Yeah, they're really great. Mm -hmm. um, so cute. Cute for kids. Oh my gosh, they must love it. Yeah. But they think they're eating a tiny watermelon and then it's a vegetable. Ha ha, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, did you grow up on a farm or are you self taught or did you go to school? Like, how did you become good with plants? Um, good question. I grew up in, well, I was born in Vancouver. And I lived there till I was five. And then uh, my mom and I moved to New Brunswick, mm. uh, so coast to coast. And I lived there until I was 18. And I moved back to Victoria after that. So yeah, I would say that I went to school for environmental studies at UVic and anthropology. I've also done a bit of, a lot of permaculture training, um, two permaculture design programs. And then I've had people in my life who are good growers. Mm. Uh, my stepmother, uh, Heather Goulet, she is an amazing grower. And um, my grandma, who's still alive, she's 93. <laughs> and she uh, lives in this really small like housing complex in New Brunswick. Um, but she's just been growing flowers for 60 years around it. Um, so yeah, that, that kind of inspired me. I think I've I, I don't know. I've come into the world with like a environmental bent, though, for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, <clears throat> uh, how much of your career path then has uh, been driven by your environmental concerns? Like, would you say that's been the main thing in terms of why you've gone to school and chosen the path that you have? What do you 
what does it do for you or what are you hoping to accomplish? What does it fulfill in you to be working with the land and uh, with vegetables and flowers? Um, it's really my only way of, of uh, feeling like I'm in control of something, <laughs> even yeah. though gardening makes me feel totally not in control a lot of the time, but at least I feel like I'm um, connecting with something natural. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it helps me to literally ground out to have my hands in the dirt. And I would say that I came to permaculture before university. Um, yeah, I was living on the Sunshine Coast and I met uh, this man Delvin over there. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he is really into permaculture. And so I, I went to a some hippie festival, literally, <laughs> with fairies and fools back in, you know, 20, 2000 and I don't know, four or something. And there was a permaculture workshop. So I went to that and I really thought, oh man, this is, this is onto something. And so I just um, continued to read and research on my own. And then I went and did a permaculture design certificate. And so that was like, Permaculture for me was offering solutions to things like um, bad water quality mm -hmm. or um, growing your own food and how to build houses that are healthy mm -hmm. and not making you sick. And so it, it touched something in me where I thought, oh my gosh, this is actually something offering solutions to how messed up our world is. Mm -hmm. So do you, now that you've been in it for a while, you even teach permaculture design yeah. uh, through your company with your um, husband, Taylor. Uh, do you still feel like it offers solutions or, or does the problem, does the scale of the problem feel such now that like now we're just, we have responses. Right. <laughs> you know? like, do you feel like your sort of optimism or hopefulness about solutions has changed over the last 14 years now? Yes. Yeah. Um, I do, in a way. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the veil just keeps <laughs> getting taken off, you know, um, because there aren't any, there aren't amazing examples of permaculture out there, you know. Um, there, there are some okay examples, but really it's, it's not it's a thing. It's a design framework. And so mm -hmm. that's really where I come down, back to is, um, you know, I go back to old books and I open them up and, and I get a wave of, of inspiration. Mm -hmm. Or there's a new book out now, uh, Retro Suburbia by David Holmgren, who is one of the mm -hmm. founder founders of permaculture. Is he Australian? Australian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've watched videos with him. Yeah, well. and the, even, like, you don't need to order the book. You can go on their website, and they have case studies of people in the suburbs who are retrofitting existing homes and dwellings to transition off of um, fossil fuels mm -hmm. and to make their dwellings more resilient to things like um, climate change. Mm-hmm. How are you finding that? So you have a young family. Um, your daughter is how old now? Three and a half. Three and a half, just yeah. little. And we live in the same city. Mm -hmm. Our city uh, is surrounded by some agriculture, but it's going away. Mm -hmm. It's getting developed all the time. So, um, yeah, tell me a little bit about how 
you do the best you can as a renter, we're both renters, in an urban environment where the farms are generally, it's, it's city farms, um, and, and really it's like a half hour drive to yeah. get to the agricultural zone. So what, what does that look like for you right now in your life as you're thinking about adapting in place? Hmm. Good question. I, well, we grow food, uh, not a lot, but we eat from the garden every day, something, um, and try to do that year round. Mm-hmm. So we moved there in, in January um, and transplanted some winter vegetables with us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would say we've been eating from the garden since February. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and yeah, I think I have a lot of friends who are farmers just outside of the city I I try to support them um yeah that that's where I'm at right now is I try to grow I'm trying to um, learn how to grow in extreme scenarios um in terms of like you know growing in pots or something Mm -hmm. like that how can I get the most out of what I have mm-hmm. using my gray water from the tub and trying to like keep our fruit trees alive and mm-hmm. um, d- yeah just trying to grow year-round and learning uh, learning that mm-hmm. yeah and we have lots of different client sites where we get to test out different things as well mm, that sounds like a great little laboratory that you've made your business yeah exactly exactly <laughs> It helps us feel more food secure when we know where fruit trees are. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's kind of stealthy. You basically seeded your own food system uh, yeah. throughout the region. Oh, yeah. that's so fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I like your point, though, about supporting farmers. Like, we, Ruben and I don't really go to the farmer's market very often because when we go there, we're like, we are growing all of these things. And right. We eat out of the garden quite a bit. We're pretty fortunate that way we have... Um, it's north facing, but we have enough space that it's fairly rare that um, we're buying too much. I shouldn't. I shouldn't make it sound like oh, we're eating all our own food. That's totally not the case. We're like, have, we buy onions, but we grow yeah. a percentage. You know, yes. I'll buy broccoli for the times when we don't have that kind of stuff. But yes. we can kind of grow everything that they are making, but we're still using a lot of water. Yes. And so it sounds like when you're saying trying to grow in more extreme situations, do you think very much about drought? Like how much of your your life is about how can I, you know, save water even as a renter where I'm not going to put in some kind of amazing, you know, gray water right. recirculation system? Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Well, we just um, hooked up irrigation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say so in our climate. Almost. Yes. So late. we've, yeah. So the garden looks pretty sad. <laughs> um, but we, yeah, and all of our clients, we make sure that irrigation is set up because of our climate here in Victoria. We actually do not get any summer rain, mm-hmm. and that's getting more extreme. And so I think about drought a lot. I think about, uh, we have an amazing reservoir in Souk. But I think about the health of the overall watershed mm. and more extreme fire scenario. Um, if all of a sudden our, if the souk, you know, watershed goes up in flames, our reservoir won't be that great mm-hmm. over time. So I think about things like that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we try to conserve water as much as 
we can and we reuse water um, in the sink I'll put uh, just a basin in there to catch water and then throw that in the garden so you're really doing a lot of the things that we all know we should do <laughs> in our day-to-day -day life but you're actually doing and I wonder how that is on your spirit when you're doing more than your share all the time oh well I don't think that I'm doing more than my share I think um yeah, I think there's always, we can always do more and that we need to encourage each other to do more as well. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. But when you look around and you see, yeah, like people. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I know, yeah, you're like, <laughs> I know. I, you know, you'll like roll in on your bike and there's a Hummer parked there, you know, and you, you just, how do you how do you feel like you're making an impact? Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I don't feel like I'm making an impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so how do you manage those feelings? I guess it sounds like you go back to the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, plant, yeah, plants. Um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I go back to my Buddhist teaching, actually. I would say that, that um, uh, I go back to impermanence and that there really is no guarantee for anything. <laughs> so I just try to remember that, that, um, you know, maybe the way I try to live my life inspires some other people around me to also cut down on their water use mm -hmm. or fly a little less or whatever it is. You know, mm -hmm. Eat organic, buy from local farmers, grow your own food. I mean, those are very simple things. And yeah, it, it is expensive. I go to farmer's markets and I think, oh my gosh, I can't afford it. Mm -hmm. I can't afford this. Um, but I make an effort. I, instead of, you know, shopping for other things, I put money towards food that mm -hmm. I support. Mm -hmm. So community, I think, is a really important part of um, coping with this feeling of, like, we're not making a difference, but, like, finding like-minded people really helps. And you say you know a lot of farmers. Mm -hmm. um, there's, like challenges in every community for sure um but I'm curious like there's this there's this tension between not wanting to be judgmental but also hoping hoping that actually your social proof or your modeling is making an impact of some sort have you had situations where you have friends or family or you're in community with people and um their efforts are inadequate to like what your standards are and it actually causes problems um, <clears throat> yeah, I guess I try to meet people just where they're at, um, and yeah, I, I would say with family, um, it's so hard. It's like, um, I, we, we live, you know, Canada is such an interesting, <laughs> very spread out country and like I said I have a grandmother uh, she, she's um, 93 and she lives in Moncton New Brunswick so totally opposite side of the country and I rarely go there um, to see her I don't I, I really don't like to fly very much um, I mean I've traveled in my past but we don't yeah we've kind of decided to not really travel very much I mean we have to go back to Saskatchewan every once in a while and visit um, Taylor's family and yeah, and have, you know, make sure we foster relationship with family for our daughter. And 
that's really important um, for her. But yeah, I would say that um, it's it's hard for us to be around people who don't see that their actions are actually contributing to the scenario that we find ourselves in. And so I try not to talk about it, honestly. Really? You <laughs> yeah. just don't bring it up. You're just like, oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, or just, you know, I just try to lead by example to say like, oh, I you know, made this from scratch or I don't use that product because it's got these harmful chemicals in it or I don't slather myself in sunscreen and then jump into a lake or, right. you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. I just try to like say what I'm doing, not mm-hmm. saying that that's the best thing ever, but just that maybe we need to think about these things and, and have these conversations more, but mm-hmm. it's hard and I'm, I'm trying to be more um, fearless of being labeled as someone who's judgmental because I'm not trying to judge anyone. I'm just trying to say, no, we actually all are empowered to make these changes ourselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have, um, little Flora and you have, you obviously have thought about like population, all that kind of stuff. I have a child too. And, um, I heard like, this was quite a long time ago, but I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, at the time they said if everybody on the planet I mean it's just one of those thought processes it wasn't like it's just a thought experiment but they said if everybody on the planet only had one child within a hundred years we'd be back down to only a billion people on the planet and we'd be fine <laughs> so there's problems with um, mandating that yeah, for sure. <laughs> but you've thought about population and you've um, still had a child do you plan on having more? Do you think about this, you know, in terms of, like, this is another one of these hard choices about, like, what are, what are we going to contribute to? And also, what's the future yeah. holding for them? So, yeah, can you talk a little bit about how you're managing all this stuff, the big emotions with children, with a child? Yeah, I'm, uh, I ride a hormonal wave, <laughs> I would say. Um, we've talked about, um, yeah, with my husband Taylor we it comes up a lot actually um I would say that we've decided to just have one and I don't think that that's gonna contribute to a lower population because I have friends who have (laughs) two and three and six and um so yeah my contributing one (laughs) is not really doing much um but I'm, I'm getting older, so yeah, it's for sure something that I think about monthly. <laughs> um, but yes, I have a friend, she has two, and she, uh, our kids are around the same age, and uh, she calls them the last generation. Um, so... Yeah. Wow, what does that mean? Like, that, that's very <laughs> arresting. Um, I know, yeah, yeah, it is. What does she mean by that, do you think? Well, in terms of climate change. Mm-hmm. and um, I mean, she kind of says it in joke, that that comes from her anxiety over climate change and just um, where we, we find ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, I would say that I think about it every day. Mm-hmm. What What is you know, my daughter? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but you know is she gonna be able to have that choice of having one or 
too, you know? Is that even going to be able to factor into her world? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I have hope. But right now, uh, we, all, we always say our other baby is our business. Um, so I'm trying to put um, that kind of first, that we really want to like try to have some kind of security for the one person that we've brought into the world um, and create community for her um, so that she doesn't feel like she's missing something by not having siblings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think the world's going to look like when Flora is, say, your age and having these um, decisions? You know, like what, when you imagine a few decades into the future, what do you think the world is going to look like? It's really hard for me to project um, that one question you had of a hundred years in the future. Um, and I, I brought that up with Taylor and he, I was like, what do you think? And he, he says he thinks people are going to live underground. <laughs> um, you know, the ones who are left. <laughs> but uh, Because it'll be so hot yeah. and so volatile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I, I don't really, I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, what's it going to look like here in Victoria in 30 years? Um, I would say it's going to be different. Yeah, and 30 years ago was different. So, yeah, it's it's really hard for me to project. I would I would love to have this fantasy where everyone, um, you know, decides that we're going to take it on and <laughs> reduce our emissions and um, build, like, relocalize. Mm-hmm. And I would say that that's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just because humans. Because <laughs> yeah. human nature. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just through observation. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I think about 100 years in the future, one of the first things I think about for specifically our uh, South Island and the Lower Mainland. Well, I think about <clears throat> the Lower Mainland a lot because of Delta. So much yes. of their food uh, is coming from lowland areas. Richmond basically won't be there. They're, you know, people don't want them to increase the dikes because it's bad for their view. Right. <laughs> it's like, are you crazy? Your house isn't even going to be here without a dike yeah. in 30 years. Yeah. Just sea level rise where yes. we are is just going to make the ecosystem very different. And um, as you said, we don't get rain all summer, so like drought means fires means just you know there's yeah. And plus, we live in the Cascadia Fault, so we could just have one cataclysmic event yeah. that we just don't ever fully recover from. Um, so you know, this is the kind of stuff that we talk about over cocktails at our house. I imagine you and Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, how prepared do you feel for um, events like? If there was an earthquake or something like that, are you the f- kind of folks who have like a pretty good bug out kind of thing, or are you like, <laughs> if we stay in place, we can like eat for so long, or or is that still? I mean, I know for us it's very much a work in progress, but yes. I look around at our neighbors and I'm like, oh god, these people are so unprepared. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's uh, I'm kind of um, we're a little bit prepared. I would say that we need to be even more prepared. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I haven't stashed water, mm-hmm. which I know I need to do. 
Mm-hmm. But um. <laughs> so I want it's like the same thing for us too, and the, yeah. the drought makes me freaked out. For sure. But we don't have an awesome. Although Fernwood has a pump, right? So yes. Yes. You and I, we've got the inside knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> water in <our> <laughs> we just got a Berkey water filter too. So oh, cool. um, and that supposedly filters out to the virus level. So if we um, could tap into some kind of water main or rainwater scenario, mm-hmm. depending on timing right yeah yeah depending on what happens yeah isn't it funny whenever I think of I think when most people think of emergency scenarios they're always imagining it happening during the day when it's sunny oh yeah it's like which is like 10% of the time in Victoria you know except for in the summer but um yeah we have a very high likelihood of needing to deal with um damp yes and wet and mud and that kind of stuff yes yeah yeah it's very, like you said, it's it's very local, and we hope that people will kind of localize and get attuned to what's happening in like where they are. Yeah. But um, I don't see it happening. No, I know it's we, and we're just going like so far beyond. Like people don't even know where eggs come from, or they don't, <laughs> you know, they don't know. Yeah, and and to think about like our our food shed in the, you know, Vancouver Island or the lower mainland, like most of our food does not come from here. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, it's one thing to think like in 30 years, are we going to be growing food? Like we'll probably not be growing hundreds of kilometers of blueberries. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Do you, do you eat meat? I do. Yeah. And so do you, um, uh, think about, like a future scenario where you move somewhere where there's more land so you can have goats and maybe a a cow or two kind of thing so that you can have a more biodiverse farm situation is that do you even think about that with real estate the way it is do you think about that um well we've just moved from rural and I would say I feel a little bit close to the city like I really I'm so happy where we landed and it's it's giving us um, more business opportunities to be closer um, to big population. I feel a little bit like, it, oh, if something major catastrophe happened, I feel a little bit close mm-hmm. to my neighbors and right. Um, so it feels better to have a bit more um, infrastructure and yeah. around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd love to live somewhere where I could have a goat. I mean, we have ten chickens in the city, nice. so uh, I feel a little bit more protein secure right now. <laughs> Um, but yeah, in my fantasy world, of course, I'm like, oh, I'd love to have a little three acre parcel where I could grow all my own food and la la la. We see a lot of that with our work, um, you know, people that decide to move rurally and, uh, they, you know, want the dream of having a farm and things like that. But the reality is that farming is savage it's hard you're not going to make money mm-hmm. if you don't have a backer or some kind of capital behind you it's very challenging and especially when there's climate change or drought and all of these things mm-hmm. going on that you have to kind of um navigate mm-hmm. plus it's like unrelenting grueling physical labor yes like constant <clears throat> and i think actually you know most of us especially those of us who 
are white and maybe a few generations into being settlers in Canada, we're pretty far from our uh, sun up to sundown physical labor yeah. ancestors, you know, <laughs> who were really working on food. And I like, I just think, I think people underestimate how exhausting it is. Oh yeah. Even just having our city garden, like, yeah. Yes. Ruben does a lot more of the um, heavy shoveling and digging and stuff like that. Although he's a lot of no-till farming, but there's still, there's always blackberries to clear. There's yes. always like, um, wood chips to haul sure. there's always like yeah. stuff to be shoveled yeah right? I think people underestimate that it's a it's an incredible amount of work and so you can't work in the outside of the home economy because you're constantly <clears throat> working on the farm so how do you do that plus there's the economics of uh, we live in one of the most expensive yeah. real estate markets in North America and not just Canada yes yeah yeah and to think about farmland yeah to buy ALR land right now yeah, it's just impossible. You'd have to be rich. <laughs> yeah. And not wanting to farm it. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You want to have like a, yeah, a B&B and wedding retreat for you. Like, that you slash you pot people. farm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So given all of this, how do you um, personally cope with grief and rage? You talked about your Buddhist practice. Um, maybe you want to say a bit more about that or, or other things that you have found to find joy even amid such times of such dire beauty right yes um I go through waves of um grieving I think and then part of me is like come on you're so privileged and everything's beautiful so (laughs) at least there's not you know fire chasing you you know Mm -hmm. down or you're you're not living in somewhere that's way worse than here Mm -hmm. so um I try to like kind of just let my emotional state just come and go Mm -hmm. (laughs) and just see that it's it's that it's it's waves and to try to um also prepare myself for change and I think that that is something that I've been trying to work on more it's like what does what does change look like? How can I be resilient when something doesn't go my way? <laughs> or, mm-hmm. you know, just coming back to my breath mm-hmm. and the earth, my little girl who's filled with joy and mm-hmm. um, trying to just be present. Yeah, I like what you say about, like, yeah, at least, so we're contemplating drought, but at least it's not war-torn and drought-stricken. Yes, you know? exactly. <laughs> it's like, okay, so there's, yes. there's things not only to be grateful for, but also that, like, we have these incredible advantages and privileges. Um, but change is an interesting uh, angle, like, just becoming really good at adaptation or acceptance or just navigating kind of a whitewater world that's always so turbulent. It's the persistent precarity that can really get you so okay so you're talking about grief comes in waves but what about anxiety I feel like there's kind of a anxiety tends to always be constant and low grade and sometimes spikes a bit for me yes around this topic I'm like pretty chill about every other thing but around this topic (laughs) the way my anxiety comes out is I just get very intolerant of people right and so I guess that's connected a bit to rage so let's say you know even within like um an environmental movement you're not quite in the doomsday prepper community let's say but you're in the environmental movement and you probably even there get a lot of people say like 
wow, you are so doom and gloom or like, you know, people living underground and like you want people to live in caves now and you think like that they, they think you're crazy. Do you just not want to like haul off and smack them? Like, like how do you deal with, with your anger about these kinds of issues? Hmm. I good question. I get I really rage in my mind. <laughs> um I I think I isolate myself a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I just come back to trying to grow more food. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's that's You're where it's like at for me. Growing. Yeah, <laughs> I'm angry growing. Yeah, I saw this. Thing. It was like some weird little meme the other day that said like. I never cry if I'm gardening or something like that. If my hands are in the dirt and I'm like always crying, like always <laughs> raging. Um, I think that, yeah, I, especially with students that I have um, where I'm teaching permaculture and I like, you know, the first day of class, I talk about why we need this kind of thinking, systems thinking, or why we need to, um, you know, think about our our food systems right now um, and I, I definitely do get a lot of blank stares and I even say oh I'm ranting but trying to make light of the situation um, but yeah I, I want to rant I want to rage for sure I want to say everyone like snap out of it mm-hmm. why are you shopping why mm-hmm. are you flying to Hawaii for the weekend Mm. why are you why are we not realizing that we're on a ticking time bomb (laughs) and that if you want to see your kids have kids then we we need to start localizing Mm. working where we are growing food setting up systems in place where if catastrophe when catastrophe strikes we're not going to be killing each other Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. do you think there's um like this this when catastrophe strikes frame i think it's so easy for people to dismiss yeah because catastrophe isn't coming either to them personally or um in kind of a a, a one single factor. It's like if a meteor doesn't hit, people think like, oh, well, we'll be okay. And plus there's right. always this kind of partial recovery or partial bounce back. Um, so like that ticking time bomb kind of also happens within, right? Where you're just like, okay, people, you're not waking up. You're not waking up. It's been like almost 15 years for you now. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh God, so even like, how do you oh explain God. to your students this idea of like shifting baselines that catastrophe doesn't necessarily come with an earthquake. It, right. It's like, what does, what's this line? Like it doesn't end with a bang. It ends with a whimper. Right. Yeah. How do you explain that to your students, like, in a rant? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, I I guess I try to inspire them from the other side. Like, Mm. oh, look at how our dwelling and how we could be living Mm. looks like. But... 
Um, yeah, this it's it's new for me. I've only been teaching for a few years, so I'm really na- navigating um, being a student and also transmitting mm. knowledge. So, mm. yeah, I I really want to have more dialogue though about this because I I see that other people are struggling um, with anxiety around climate change and around systems collapse, um, and so. Yeah, I I don't know. I'm thinking of starting a support group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah, fears and tears. We'll all just yeah. get together. Yeah, but also, um, like, how do we prepare? Mm-hmm. Like, to come from it from a solutions point of view. Like, mm-hmm. oh, if we're worried about, um, you know, an earthquake, maybe we should help each other prep a bit more. Right. So it kind of comes back to that, like, feeling like you have some agency yeah. within this uncontrollable and inevitable change yes. that's coming. Yes. Uh, okay, then last question. How do you, how do you, like, seek joy and laughter even as you have this sort of anxiety <laughs> always <laughs> there? Like, well, like, are there certain things that you specifically <laughs> do to counteract that? Or is it... Is it, at this point, just kind of a generalized approach to life? Uh, (laughs) I go back to gardening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... What's your favorite thing in the garden right now? Or, like, maybe not right now because we're in drought and everything looks so sad. But, like, what, what are you so delighted by when you're out there? Um, well, I've really... I get a lot of joy when I visit our clients and they, it's been a few years in and they're harvesting fruit and they're, I I get joy from seeing their joy Mm -hmm. um, in the garden or when they tell me stories of some kind of connection that they've had or recently uh, two separate clients have said to us that that they don't want to leave. They don't want to go on vacation. They want to stay home because they've felt like they, they now have this sanctuary at home where they're surrounded by food and it's a really great place for their kids or mm. to have people come over. And so that, that was really a good, um, an amazing little spark of inspiration for me where mm. it clicked and I was like, yes, like mm. we're creating a better home environment so that people don't feel like they need to travel so much mm. that they can be local. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's where I'm like finding my my joy edge. <laughs> nice. And what are your favorite flowers to grow right now? My favorite flowers to grow. Hmm. I'm growing these beautiful um, cosmos, the cupcake cosmos. Oh. Uh, they're beautiful, and um, the Hopi black dye sunflower mm. that I've saved some seed from, and they're doing really well. Um, yeah, I'm I'm super passionate about perennial vegetables, and I have been doing lots of workshops around that. So just um, different uh, vegetables that we can grow, and oftentimes they're um, early or later crops, so they kind of fulfill fulfill in the um, hunger gap mm. a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, just perennial, different perennial onions and perennial vegetables that come back every year Mm. and you do some uh dyeing and stuff too you dye silks and things like that yeah and so is that just for your own fun yes yeah yeah I've sold a few like silk ribbons um 
yeah, that's for sure a hobby. <laughs> um, but it does spark joy. <laughs> I love working with plants and like transforming them into different things. So I guess that, yeah, that's where like my, the, the joyfulness comes when I, you know, turn cucamelons into pickles <laughs> or I make silk turn from white to purple or something. <laughs> um, that, that alchemy that can happen with a plant is really super powerful. And then lately I've just been um, finding so much joy watching Flora experience things in the garden as well. And just her interaction with bees and mm-hmm. butterflies and plants and things like that. And when she, you know, now she gives little tours around the garden or things like, you know, she'll talk about our medlar tree in the backyard and, and always asking when they're ripe and things like that. So so that that's really inspiring for me just to see, try to like um, kind of create some kind of scenario for her to have connection with nature. Mm-hmm. I think that that's really important. And I, yeah, like I say, I try to do that with our clients as well. And, um, and then hoping that it rubs off on my family and um, people around me. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing and um, letting everybody else, all the listeners, um, get to sort of bask in the glow of, of your love of plants and your passionate care for the earth. And thank you for your service. Aw, thanks, Carmen. I'm, um, yeah, just very kind of surprised that you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you're like a, a, a lovely public figure of like a very kind of um, earth goddess, maternal Aww. like kind of person about town. It seems Aww. like you should have more platform for that. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Like I'm silently story. raging on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? But she rages so graciously, though. To find out more about Hatchet and Seed, go to H-A-T-C-H-E-T-N-S-E-E-D dot C-A. And of course, I'll link to uh, Hatchet and Seed and Solara's Instagram uh, on the show notes on my website. If you'd like to know more about my Hollyhock retreat, my online courses, or working with me one-on-one, go to CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.